0: Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Coffin Ships and Canada. This is the second of four podcasts in the Great Famine series that looks at the story of Irish migration during and after the Great Hunger. The first show, Exiles, looked at the overall numbers and some of the specific situations driving people to emigrate. This podcast joins them on a journey across the Atlantic Ocean detailing what emigration was like in the 19th century and the challenges that Irish famine emigrants faced. We will specifically hone in on the Irish people who travelled to Canada, whose experiences have left a deep imprint on how Irish people understand and remember the history of the entire famine period. Coming shows will look at the Irish experience in the USA and Great Britain. This episode begins though, by looking at some of the rituals that surrounded emigration in the Victorian age. Overall, it was an entirely different experience, one more akin to space travel than what moving to another country is like today. In the 19th century, emigration could be an extremely traumatic process, as we are about to see. In the second half of the 19th century, a curious tradition developed in Ireland known as an American wake. A wake is a ritual that takes place after someone dies but before they are buried. In Ireland it takes the form of a celebration of the deceased person's life. An American wake however was not held for someone who had died but instead for those who were about to emigrate. This was because 19th century emigration to North America in particular was akin to dying in many ways. Most who left never returned to Ireland or saw their family or friends again. In 1890 an older Irish emigrant recalled his own American wake which had taken place when he had left Ireland with two neighbours back in 1857. I myself was the first to go. Two girls of the village accompanied me. On the night we were to leave an American wake was held at Dwyer's. That was the girl's name. And never, if I live, for a thousand years will I forget that night. The people came for miles around to bid us goodbye. Dwyer's house was crowded. One would think it was a wedding instead of a wake. There was such singing and dancing and rejoicing of every description. The only person that exhibited any signs of grief was old Mrs Dwyer, who sat rocking herself to and fro in the chimney corner. The two girls were dressed in their best, and every young man in the house was anxious to have a last dance with them. At twelve o'clock, when old Dwyer came in to say the horse was tacked, a hush came over the merriment. The girls went around to shake hands with every person in the house, and many little presents were exchanged. When the girls went to bid goodbye to their mother, there was not a dry eye in the house. When Mrs. DeWire threw her arms around her daughter's neck and gave vent to a heart-piercing wail as she pressed her children to her heart and prayed a hundred thousand blessings, that crowd of light-hearted men and women wept aloud. A more sorrowful sight could not be witnessed than that of seeing these girls visiting every room in the house to take a last look of things they were to see no more, and when, at length, they tore themselves away. It was only to return to squeeze the old mother to their aching breasts as if their hearts would break. The poor mother knew that to her at least they were forever dead the moment they turned the gap of the yard. They were lost to her forever. This treatment of emigrants as if they had died tells us so much about the experience of emigration in the 19th century. If heading to North America, Irish emigrants could spend as long as eight weeks at sea... On arrival they would try and set themselves up with work, but even when successful the idea of returning home was one few could contemplate. By and large they remained people of modest means and what money they could save was often sent back to Ireland to help others emigrate or support impoverished family members. While this meant returning home was difficult, communication with their loved ones was much slower and more impersonal than it is today. Skype, FaceTime or even phones of any kind did not exist. While there was a very good postal service, it was a poor substitute for face-to-face contact. As each year passed, the memory of what emigrants looked like and even what their voices sounded like faded from memory. Emigration was in many respects therefore similar to death. The trauma of this process for the emigrant themselves was increased by the fact that most of them were leaving communities they knew intimately well. Day-to-day life in the mid-19th century was for most people rooted in one small area. It wasn't uncommon to be born, grow up and get married in the one community. Many of our 19th century ancestors who grew up in rural Ireland worked on the same land for generations, in some cases living in the same houses their forefathers had, and then to complete the circle, when they died, they were buried in the same graveyards. While seasonal travel to Scotland to gather the harvest was common for men, particularly in the west of Ireland, they left safely in the knowledge they would return to their kith and kin within a matter of months. The opposite was the case, though, with transatlantic emigration. When ships ventured out into the vast expanses of the Atlantic Ocean, the passengers knew that once Ireland faded over the horizon, they would never see their homes again. However, before I paint a picture that's too nostalgic, it's worth remembering the things driving Irish people overseas in the mid 19th century. Even before the Great Famine began, life in Ireland was very difficult. The custom of subdividing land between all male children while seeming fair resulted in each generation becoming poorer. By the 1840s, competition for even the smallest amount of land had grown fierce. There was little chance of enrichment. As each generation over the previous 50 years found themselves poorer than their parents, emigration had grown steadily between 1800 and 1845. As we saw in the first episode on emigration, entitled Exiles, the onset of famine in 1845, combined with the terrible reaction of the British government, saw the numbers seeking to leave rise sharply. When I was researching this podcast, I came across a great summary of famine emigration on the website Fenna.com. It said, The famine changed the attitude of the Irish people towards emigration. No longer was it a question of whether to go, but of when and how to leave. Hope was before them and nothing was behind them but the misery they were leaving by 1847 this was certainly the case when irish people began fleeing the country in huge numbers in black 47 alone over 220000 people fled ireland while they scattered across the globe most that year headed for canada the focus of this podcast The total number that reached British North America, as Canada was then known, was over 100,000 people. That's over 1% of the total population of Ireland at the time. Canada, or British North America, proved popular for several reasons, not least among them because it was dramatically cheaper than passage to the USA. Tickets to Canada in 1847 were 30% less than those to the United States. But there were other reasons too. In 1847 Canada seemed to offer everything Ireland lacked. Migrants from Ireland who had moved to Canada before the famine were sending reports home that detailed a land of great opportunity. In February 1847, while the future in Ireland seemed bleak to say the least, one emigrant who only identified themselves as TE wrote home about their experiences T.E. had left Ireland in the early 1830s and when they heard of the unfolding famine back home, they wrote to the Limerick Chronicle newspaper suggesting Irish people should emigrate to Canada. T.E. informed the newspaper's readers, The British American provinces are large and fertile in soil and salubrious in climates, yielding abundance of food with comparatively little labour, and although capable of supporting a population greater than that of the British islands, They contain about 2 million inhabitants. They went on to talk of high wages for both men and women while adding it was easy for the Irish to adapt in Canada. T.E. was not a lone voice making such claims. Others make Canada sound really appealing to Irish people desperate to escape. By April 1847, newspapers were advertising a book called Canada As It Is, The Emigrant's Friend and Guide to Upper Canada. Written by the Reverend G.W. War, who had lived in Canada for four years, the book was similar to a modern travel guide. War also talked of high wages, cheap farmland and the possibility of rising in society. Even of the less well-off, he said, There is a strong possibility of their children becoming possessors of portions of land in Canada which they could not hope to rent in England or Ireland. This was deeply attractive for a generation of Irish people living through famine, but who for decades had seen their hopes of a better life sink in the mire of poverty engulfing Ireland. Indeed, what Canada offered seemed too good to be true, and as is usually the case in such matters, it was. This land of milk and honey in North America quickly turned sour As we will see next, the experiences of Irish emigrants bound for Canada in Black 47 were among the worst during the entire history of the Great Famine. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.
0: Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit com slash Irish History today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Irish History. From the earliest months of 1847, thousands of Irish families had packed what belongings they had, waved goodbye to their loved ones in Ireland and began a journey that they hoped would allow them a second chance at life, one where their very survival was not in question. However, it didn't take long before very unsettling rumours began to reach Ireland about what these emigrants heading for Canada were enduring reports of brutal conditions on ships and indeed a worse situation in the quarantine stations they had to pass through on the other side of the atlantic drifted back to ireland by late june these reports were confirmed by an impeccable source who offered a stark warning to irish emigrants informing them that the canada they had heard of from people like the reverend war was little more than a dream one few of them could realize in fact for many was a living hell. This impeccable source was a man called Joseph Signy, the Catholic Archbishop of Quebec. Like many in the province of Quebec, Archbishop Signy was a French speaker, a legacy of when the region had been a French colony before it had been conquered by the British back in 1759. In 1847, Signy took it on himself to write to his fellow bishops and archbishops in Ireland with a warning to try and stop more Irish people heading across the North Atlantic into what were even worse conditions than they faced during the famine in Ireland. The Archbishop's words, even today, make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. His letter is read here by Alexei Kelly.
1: Quebec, June ninth, 1847 My Lord and Venerable Brothers the voice of religion and humanity imposes on me the sacred and imperative duty of exposing to your lordship the dismal fate that awaits thousands of the unfortunate children of Ireland who come to seek in Canada an asylum from the countless evils afflicting them in their native land.
0: The Archbishop went on to provide deeply worrying details about what awaited Irish people. Signy encountered them as they arrived in the St. Lawrence River, the principal route vessels took to reach the major cities in the interior of Quebec. By then, they had endured weeks at sea. Archbishop Signy continued his account of the situation in Canada by 1847 as follows.
1: Already, a considerable number of vessels overloaded with migrants from Ireland have arrived in the waters of the St. Lawrence. During the passage, many of them weakened beforehand by misery and starvation, have contracted fatal diseases, and for the greater part have thus become the victims of an untimely death. This was but the very natural result of their precarious situation, crowded in the holds of the vessels, unable to strictly adhere to the rules of cleanliness, breathing constantly a putrid atmosphere, and relying frequently for nourishment upon insufficient and very bad provisions.
0: Indeed, so terrible were the conditions on these vessels that they justifiably earned the Macabre name of coffin ships. The problems for most passengers started the minute the vessels weighed anchor and left Ireland. Indeed, many found themselves on board ships that were not actually passenger ships at all. However, contrary to what is the popular understanding, the problem with coffin ships was not that they were not seaworthy, but rather they were not fit for purpose. They were frequently cargo vessels which had carried Canadian timber or other goods then in high demand in Europe across the Atlantic. However, there was little to fill their holes for the outward leg of the journey from Europe. So, from the earliest months of 1847, when large numbers of people were desperate to escape Ireland, captains began hastily refitting the vessels to carry passengers to Canada. Unsurprisingly then, these vessels lacked anything by way of comfort and the ship owners and captains, in an effort to maximise profits, were bringing way too many people on board. Conditions were deplorable. The experience of passengers on one vessel The Superior illustrates precisely what Archbishop Signy was talking about when he talked of their terrible journeys. The superior had arrived in Derry in late june eighteen forty seven having crossed the Atlantic with a cargo of food. It was immediately refitted for a return journey, this time carrying people fleeing from famine. The refit took only two weeks and by july fourteenth the superior was leaving the Derry Keys with three hundred and sixty six people on board. While at sea disease ravaged the crew and passengers. For the healthy on board this must have been a terrifying journey. Ships in the mid 19th century were tiny so there was no space to keep away from the sick. In good weather the healthy could stand on deck but in stormy conditions they had to retreat to the hold where the hatches were closed and the passengers both sick and healthy were effectively locked below decks together. The Limerick landlord Stephen Devere provided even greater detail than Archbishop Signy after he travelled in steerage with famine emigrants to see exactly what conditions were like. He articulated the horrors of such voyages in this account. Before the emigrant is a weak at sea, he is an altered man. How can it be otherwise? Hundreds of poor people, men, women and children of all ages, from the driveling idiot of ninety to the babe just born, huddled together without light, without air, wallowing in filth and breathing in a fetid atmosphere, sick in body and dispirited in heart. The misery of those enduring such situations must have seemed never-ending, particularly on board that vessel that had left Derry in July, the Superior. A short Atlantic crossing could be completed in 30 days, but it took the Superior nearly three weeks extra. These extra weeks must have been excruciating for those who had managed to avoid infection. With each passing day, the supplies of food and water were running shorter, meaning all on board were growing weaker and weaker, which made them all more susceptible to disease. Even when land appeared on the horizon, this was just false hope. Most ships were heading for the major cities of Quebec and Montreal and this involved continuing their journey for another few hundred miles up the St. Lawrence River until eventually they arrived at a small island measuring less than 500 metres in width and scarcely a few kilometres in length. This was called Grosseil meaning large island and all ships had to dock there before completing their journey. The island of Grossil was a quarantine station, meaning that passengers could go no further until they had a clean bill of health from the authorities. While the famine emigrants were tantalisingly close to their ultimate destination, Grosil was just the beginning of a new and even more challenging experience for them. Theoretically at least, the establishment of a quarantine station at Grosil was a sensible measure on behalf of the Canadian authorities. It was designed to stop new arrivals spreading disease into the cities where they were heading. So, on arriving at Grosil, the sick were supposed to be removed from the ships to hospitals while the rest of the passengers had to remain until the authorities were happy they were free from disease. While a sensible measure, the quarantine station on Grosil quickly turned into a living nightmare. By the summer of 1847 huge numbers of people were leaving Ireland, many of them ill before they even left home and this resulted in the island in the St Lawrence River being inundated with people. It simply couldn't cope and the conditions became horrific. Archbishop Joseph Signy, who we heard of earlier, provides us now with more details about what Grosiel was like in his letter which was published in Irish newspapers in the summer of 1847.
1: Last week at the station of Grosil were detained more than two thousand patients, of whom scarcely more than a half would find a shelter on the island.
0: This overcrowding made the situation worse as Archbishop Signy explained what happened to the sick who could not be accommodated on the island.
1: The others were left in the holds of their respective vessels spreading contagion among the other healthy passengers who were confined in the vessels, and exhibiting the heart-rending spectacle of a mortality three times greater than what prevailed ashore. Already more than a thousand human beings have been consigned to their eternal rest in the Catholic cemetery, precursors of thousands of others who will join them there if the stream of emigration from Ireland continues to flow with the same abundance.
0: If this wasn't enough... Signy then closed his letter by making it clear the dreams people may have had about new lives in Canada were probably just that, dreams. The reality of what they faced was just further hardship and poverty.
1: I deem it also necessary to mention that those who have escaped from the fatal influence of disease are far from realising on their arrival here the ardent hopes they fondly cherished of meeting with unspeakable comfort and prosperity on the banks of the St. Lawrence. To attain so desirable an end, they should possess means which the greater number have not, and which cannot be rendered available and efficacious unless emigration be conducted on a more diminished scale. I have the honor to remain, my lord and venerable brother, with sentiments of profound respect, your most humble and obedient servant, Joseph C. Archbishop of Quebec.
0: While the Archbishop's letter may have been full of generalizations, the experience of the passengers on the vessel the Superior which had left Derry in july eighteen forty seven served to confirm his claims. When they arrived at Grosle in august eighteen forty seven, the conditions on board the Superior were every bit as bad as could be imagined. eighteen people had already died at sea, but one hundred and fifty out of the three hundred sixty six passengers were ill. With the quarantine station of Groceil already horrendously overcrowded, by July 31st there were 2,250 people there, the conditions of many of the sick on board the Superior just deteriorated. In the coming weeks, dozens died. In total, 63 of those who had left Derry died at sea or at Groceil, a death rate of around 1 in 5 people. While this sounds extreme, the experience of the passengers on board the Superior was pretty standard for Irish famine emigrants heading to Canada in 1847. The death rate was a shocking 20%. The situation was so bad that the Irish newspaper, the Freeman's Journal, bluntly advised potential emigrants not to risk travelling. One writer stated, I cannot amiss to repeat, though it would be tedious as a thrice-told tale, the warning to emigrants. Under no circumstances take the Canada route. It is the wretchedest of economy to risk life for the sake of saving a few shillings. Friends, do not risk it. This was good advice because, on average, the death rate in Ireland during the Great Famine was far lower than that of emigrants to Canada in 1847. Overall, through 1847, at least 5,000 people perished at sea while crossing the Atlantic Ocean. The situation at Gros Ile made this shocking death toll dramatically worse. In 1847, 9,000 sick people had to be quarantined on the island. This was an increase of 1,000% from the previous year and even though the Canadian authorities had made provisions for increased numbers, they could never have envisaged the massive surge in emigration from Ireland that year. 4,300 of those people who had fallen sick never left the island, dying in the hospitals or in the holes of quarantined ships. To make matters worse, the pressure to free up beds rendered the quarantine only partially effective and some sick people were allowed through. This only made the situation even worse and another 3,500 emigrants would perish in one Montreal hospital alone as disease did break out in the major Canadian cities. In total, somewhere around 18,000 famine emigrants, that's as I've said, somewhere in the region of one in five of those who emigrated to Quebec, did not survive the trip. The costs for the staff who treated them on the island was also terrible. At Seal, 260 staff fell sick and 38 died. The enormous death rate of Irish emigrants was due to three factors. The boats themselves were clearly unfit for purpose. The people were often malnourished and unable to resist disease. And then finally, the overcrowded conditions at the quarantine station in the St. Lawrence River were abominable. In the 21st century, it is this experience of Irish famine emigrants to Canada in 1847 which is considered the archetypical experience of all famine emigrants. However, this isn't the case. Thankfully, death rates dropped dramatically in the coming years to low single digits, with some evidence suggesting that in the latter years of the Great Famine, mortality among emigrants may have been as low as 2%. Nevertheless, the coffin ships of 1847 have become central to how Irish people have remembered the famine. Next, though, we will look at what lay ahead for those who survived the gauntlet of a transatlantic crossing. But first, some information about my new Irish history website, which I've just launched. The last couple of months have been extremely busy for me. I'm just getting my new Dublin Famine Tour off the ground and now I'm delighted to say I have a completely new website as well. The website has been built from scratch and while it's at the same address as the old site, that's irishhistorypodcast.ie, it's totally new and a real joy to use. You can find the entire back catalogue of podcasts really easily and lots of articles about Irish history photographs of Irish history sites and lots of other great content. So it's really worth checking out at irishhistorypodcast.ie. One of the reasons I wanted to revamp the site was because I've just launched, as I said, my new Dublin Famine Tour and I wanted you guys to be able to book the tour as easily as possible. So now at irishhistorypodcast.ie, you can book your tour in advance by simply going there and clicking on the tour page. The tour itself is an interactive journey that brings you to the heart of Victorian Dublin in a way you cannot imagine. You will hear the sounds of Dublin in the 19th century while surrounded by the buildings that survived from that time. It's the perfect backdrop to hear the history of the Great Famine. So I look forward to meeting you on a tour over the summer. You can find out more now and book tickets at my new site at irishhistorypodcast.ie That's irishhistorypodcast.ie. Now, back to 1847. While precise numbers are hard to pin down, somewhere in the region of 220,000 people left Ireland in 1847. Around half of those had made their way to Canada. While some landed in places like New Brunswick and Newfoundland on the Atlantic Ocean, the vast majority of ships around 441, containing 80,000 people, had continued on to Quebec further inland. While the conditions at Grossville were horrific, some 8 out of 10 Irish famine emigrants did survive. The vast majority of these had only travelled to Canada as a cheap route to the USA and once free from quarantine, they continued on their journey crossing the United States border. Perhaps the prospect of the brutal Canadian winter where temperatures in Quebec could fall to minus 20 and below was a factor that drove them on. Nevertheless, in 1847, thousands of Irish people remained behind in Canada. Their numbers were augmented in coming years, but the popularity of the Canadian route unsurprisingly declined rapidly after the horrors of the coffin ships in 1847. While over 100,000 made the journey, in that year of Black 47 this fell to 30,000 in 1848 before it increased slightly again to 40,000 in 1849. In Canada the Irish who remained there rather than moving on to the USA found a society that was divided in their attitude towards Irish famine emigrants. Many were deeply sympathetic. In 1847 20,000 pounds had already been collected for famine relief back in Ireland Much of this money had been raised through different appeals to different communities. People of Irish descent naturally felt affinity, while appeals on the basis of religion was effective among the French-speaking communities in Quebec, who by and large tended to be Catholic, like many people in Ireland. For others, they saw it as their imperial duty to help another region in the British Empire. Then there was also those who appeared to have been motivated by pure altruism. The Legislative Assembly in Canada heard... That among those whose generosity has been so conspicuous on this trying occasion are our Indian brethren. In terms of the emigrants themselves, many across Canada welcomed them and did what they could. However, Irish emigrants also faced hostility from some. Indeed, the echoes of arguments frequently used against emigrants today can be found in the 1840s and 50s in the opposition that greeted the thousands of desperate and impoverished Irish people from some quarters in Canada. This opposition was channeled into a movement known as Canadian nativism which was explicitly hostile to Irish Catholics in particular. Nativism is an idea long associated with the USA and is something we will encounter in the next episode on Irish emigration to the United States. While it varies from place to place, at its core it is founded on a deeply racist understanding of the world, one that in the 19th century held many but not all Irish people to be racially inferior. Race itself does not fully explain Canadian nativism and its hostility to Irish famine emigrants however. It was also heavily linked to religious tensions and bigotry back in Europe. Nativists were not hostile to all Irish people but just Irish Catholics. Indeed the rise of nativism was in part fuelled by a shift in balance within the Irish community in Canada during the famine. Prior to the Great Hunger, the Irish in Canada had traditionally been Protestant but the arrival of what were large numbers of poor Catholics during the famine reignited what were long-running sectarian tensions back in Ireland. Protestants feared that they would become a minority in the region if emigration from Ireland continued to be dominated by poor Catholics. This was an ill-founded fear, but in the 1840s and 50s it probably seemed inevitable as communities of Irish Catholics doubled and trebled in the space of a few years, making them significant minorities in many cities. Irish Catholics in some ways were viewed as disloyal for two key reasons. Firstly, their tendency to support Irish nationalism, which was seen as an internal enemy in the British Empire, led many to view them with suspicion in Canada, but secondly the fact that Catholics in general were thought to be ultimately loyal to the Pope rather than the British monarchy, fed these beliefs. In this context, sectarian organisations like the Orange Order and the Protestant Protective Association became vehicles for nativists in their opposition to Irish emigrants. They were also though able to find support across society, not least due to the actions of some ruthless employers who exploited desperate Irish famine emigrants. These emigrants, who often had nothing, were willing to work for lower wages, particularly in the lumber and docking industries. They were therefore being used to undercut wages, and this inflamed nativist sentiments in poor communities. The crucible of these tensions was the city of Toronto, where 38,000 Irish people had arrived in 1847 alone, most of them Catholics. By 1860, they numbered 20% of the city population and outnumbered Protestants from both Britain and Ireland in the city. This resulted in major tensions and frequent violence as Toronto became known as the Belfast of North America. However, this would not define the Irish experience in all parts of Canada. In Quebec, for example, the situation was somewhat different. Even though there was a sharp rise in the Irish population and tensions between French speaking communities and the Irish were a feature of life, the fact that both were Catholic removed the vicious sectarianism that inflamed tensions elsewhere. Although it would take decades, the Irish in Canada slowly adjusted to life in the region and perhaps due to their smaller numbers, they never became as powerful an influence as they did on the other side of Canada's southern border in the United States. In the next episode, I will look at greater detail at some of the more long-term impacts of Irish communities in North America and while that show will focus on the USA, I will also look at some aspects of the Canadian story. But for now, I'm going to draw this episode to a close don't forget you can book your place on the Dublin Famine Tour which gives you an incredible insight into life in Ireland during the late 1840s. You can do that at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Until next time, Sloan.